Hurricane Ian was uh, a Category 4 hurricane, and I don't know if you knew this, but was the fifth largest hurricane in U.S. history. The aftermath of Hurricane Ian was devastating. Well, if you looked at the pictures, read, read the articles, I mean, houses were flattened and, and roofs were ripped off and water destroyed buildings, water flooded the street, and the water that was flooding was contaminated. It contaminated the drinking water. Trees were sawed off. Sanibel Island, which I visited once, Sanibel Island was wiped off the face of the planet. It was the deadliest storm since 1935, linked to the deaths of at least 119 people in the state of Florida. It was a bad storm. Brothers and sisters, sin, our sin, is like a hurricane of destruction in our lives. If we choose to sin and rebel from unbelief, rebel against God, we will deal with the aftermath of our sin. This is just as true today as it was in the Old Testament. It's just as true today as it was for the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. And I want to take your Bibles and turn then to our passage this morning. In the book of Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 1, and I want you to find verse 26 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. And as you're turning there, remember, the book of Deuteronomy is three sermons, and the first four chapters are the first sermon. And the first sermon is a, is a sermon on remembrance of the past. For the people are to remember the past failures with their sin and the past faithfulness of God if they're ever going to in the future move on the promises of God and take the land. And so Moses preaches that first sermon, a sermon of remembrance, and we're in the middle of that sermon at this point. And last time in verses 19 through 33, we were recounting the failure of that first generation of Israel 40 years before we read about that failure today in our scripture reading. He's recounting that those 12 spies that were sent out, 10 with a bad report, two with a good report, And Joshua and Caleb came back and said, it is good. The land is as good as God said it was. And that's kind of where we're at. And let's just pick it up so that we can catch the context of our passage. So find verse 26. Let's pick up the story at verse 26 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. Yet, even after the good report of the spies, yet... 
Verse 26, you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are bigger and taller than we, the cities are large and fortified to heaven, and besides We saw the sons of the Anakim there. And I said to them, do not be shocked nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf. Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you. Just as a man carries his son. In all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. Look at verse 32, but for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. And so the people of Israel, with the report of the spies, the promises of God before them, the confirmation of the promises with the grapes and the goodness of the land, Right before them, the people of Israel in outright rebellion, the text says flowing from unbelief, not trusting their God. What did they do? They grumbled, manifesting their unbelief. Okay? They lied about their God, saying God hated them when he loved them with an everlasting love. They blame shifted. It was the spies' fault, it's their fault. And then they feared man. And all of those things summed up unbelief that we found again in verse 32. For all this, you did not trust the Lord your God. And so the people of Israel, that first generation, sinned. And that sin flowed out of unbelief. One could argue that all sin flows out of unbelief. And Moses is reminding the next generation, the children of those people, that they must believe. And this next section that we come to, we come to it, it's very sad. The next section that we will see today. We're going to find out that like a hurricane, there is a destructive aftermath to our sin. It's true in Israel and it's true for the people of God today. Put your seatbelts on. Let's read about the aftermath of Israel's sin. Verse 34. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot because he has followed the Lord fully. The Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, not even you shall enter there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones who... 
you said would become a prey. And your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn around. Horrible words. Turn around and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Then you said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. We will indeed go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every man of you girded on his weapons of war and regarded it as easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, say to them, do not go up nor fight for I am not among you. Otherwise you will be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you. Or in the the book of Numbers, and I quote, gave them a beat down. Last verse. And crushed you from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice, nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days, the days that you spent there. Sin left a destruction in its wake. So, what follows? What is the aftermath of our sin? There are two to reflect on from our passage this morning. First, In the aftermath of sin, there are consequences. There are consequences. There were consequences for that first generation 40 years ago. Look at verse 34. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry, and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers. The Lord is listening to our words. He's not deaf. He hears them. He hears our self-pity. He hears our grumbling. He hears our blame-shifting. He hears our anger, he hears our fear, and he hears our lies about him and about the truth. The Lord hears the words of his people. And the Lord was angry when he heard these words. He took an oath 
And that's strong language. That's covenantal language. The Lord had made an oath to give Israel the land, and now He swears an oath, the same type of language, that this evil generation would not see the land. And He planned it out and prophesied the exact number of years. Forty. A year for each day. How devastating. The land which I have sworn to give to your fathers, I swear that you will not see the sworn land. That's strong language. There were a couple of exceptions in this text, weren't there? Caleb and Joshua. Let's look at Caleb first, verse 36. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he has followed the Lord fully. Now, if you're not familiar, Joshua and Caleb, you guessed it, were the two good spies, the spies that in spite of seeing the giants saw the good land and said, God can do this. Let's do this. They were the two. Okay? And so Caleb chose to take his eyes off the things, the cities, the people, and the giants that caused him fear, and I'm sure he shook in his boots at the sight of them, chose to take his eyes off them and put his eyes on the character of God as a warrior, as a father, and as a guide, chose to do that in faith, and he said, God's got this. Why? What does faith look like? It's described right here. Faith follows the Lord fully. When you as a believer are exercising faith, you're not half in the moment you're exercising faith. You're all in when you are exercising faith and not living according to a lie. You are all in if you are exercising spirit-given faith. Faith follows the Lord fully. Faith follows the Lord. How would our churches change in the U.S. if we learned that faith follows the Lord? How would we change? You know what? I'm, I'm getting emotional coming to this next part because it's all over the book of Deuteronomy. So bear with me. Moses wasn't one of the exceptions. That's hard for me to even preach. It's a shocking verse that I have to spend some more time to understand. So I'll say what I know today. Here's what I know. Moses was the most humble man alive at that time, says the Bible. Moses was a faithful leader of the grumbling people for 40 years. So I would ask, and I would say, Moses was not going to enter into that land. And I will ask you, are there consequences to sin? Is sin a big deal? I don't understand this verse, but I'll just say this for today. Now I have four more shots at it in this book, because he brings it up five times. 
Is not listening to the word of the Lord a big deal? Verse 37, the Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, not even you shall enter there. And this, and, and I, I like to tie the Bible together, so keep a bookmark in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and flip quickly back to Numbers chapter 20, because I think we at least need to get the context of, of why in the world Moses isn't going into the land and what he did so that you get a feel for it quickly. So turn to Numbers chapter 20 and find verse 8, and I'm going to go quickly here. This is talking about Moses' sin that had such devastating aftermath for him as well. Verse 8 of Numbers 20. God says, take the rod and you and your brother, he's speaking to Moses, you, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he has commanded him. I like to say this, so far so good. Verse 10, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, one, two for two so far. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. I think I'm probably right. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock. Twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me. Stop there. Faith failed right there. Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore. You shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Those were the waters of Meribah, bitter waters. Because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. So Moses writes, and I'll go back to, your, to our passage in Deuteronomy. Take your bookmark, go back there. So Moses is reflecting on this bitter reflection from years and years in the past. He is not happy in this passage. It's in the structure of the text. I'm sure of it. He's not happy. Moses writes, he's not going in. I'm not going in because of you. On your account. Interesting. Don't ask me what it means yet. I'll tell you what I know today. I'm not going in to be, uh, because of you. I'll tell you what. Moses was angry with the people of Israel. You rebels. At the end of the book, we know as we read the whole book, he knows and Moses understands that he has sinned against God. That he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock if you didn't catch it. 
So certainly in our passage, it's not just the rebel, unbelieving Israelites under the old covenant that weren't truly believers that got what they deserved. This is a believer, Moses, and you're going to call him an unbeliever. Does this not apply to us? Then there are consequences to sin. Moses was provoked by his sin. I think what Moses is saying is the whole rock incident would never have happened if the people had just followed the Lord fully and entered into the land of blessing. And Moses was provoked by their sin. He was provoked by their sin. And he fell into sin because of their sin. And he's, he's just not happy about the whole thing. One pastor said well, he said, quotes, The most destructive thing about sin is the way that it constantly reproduces itself. One transgression quickly incites, I love that word, another. It incites another. I'm not going to lie, I don't think Moses is perfect in Deuteronomy chapter 1. He's having a hard time accepting the consequences for his sin. But let me ask you a question. Was Moses not a faithful leader? Couldn't God just give him a break? I mean, look what he did and suffered through for crying out loud. There are consequences to sin. In the aftermath of sin, there are consequences. Leaders, take note, Jim. Dan's not here. Deacons, leaders of homes, leaders at work, leaders in this church, take note. We can't blame shift for our sin. We stand before God for our anger, for our fear, for our blame shifting, for our sin. for our own obedience to the Lord's commands. We stand before the Lord for our sin. Take note of verse 37 in Moses' life, and we'll unpack more later. There are consequences to sin. But there's another exception, though. There's an individual named Joshua who's the successor of Moses. We'll find out that he will also enter into the land like Caleb. Look at him in verse 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there, encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. You know, God's going to do it, but he uses means. And we already know, right, that they needed leadership structure. Am I right? We, we just covered that. That's one of the things he covered. He could have said so many things. We talked about the, the leadership that they would need to go into the land. Well, the next leader, the one who will take them in, to fulfill this promise would not be Moses, it would be Joshua. And so we, we, we just assume that as he's being mentored by Moses and watching Moses handle the hard cases over the years and all of that, that Joshua is, is a, knows God's word, that Joshua is wise, that Joshua is learning. Surely over the years he's gaining the experience that we learned about. But let me tell you one thing that must characterize every leader in this world, in any sphere, every Christian leader, it must be summarized like this. If you're going to be a leader, you must follow 
the Lord fully. Just follow the Lord fully. Now, by way of emphasis, at the beginning and end of this section, he goes back to that first generation. It's a nice little structure you can look at later, Brendan. He goes back to the first generation and talks to them in verse 39, just like he did when he started the oath language. Okay? Look at verse 39. Moreover, now he goes back to them, your little ones, okay, who you said would become a prey, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Okay, so what looks like was happening here is that first generation of Israel, okay, they had kids, and it's the kids, mom and dad have died, and it's the kids who've grown up 40 years later, and they're the ones that are poised to enter the promised land. And it looks like the text is telling us that the reason that they couldn't obey God God, now listen, it's for a good reason here, okay? I know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to be a good father for the health of my children. If we go in there, our children will be killed or taken as slaves. And as one has said, quotes, fearful parents imagine they would dig the graves of their children, end quotes. All anxiety that fuels this fear, that kills faith, is about what might happen in the future. It robs us of faith in God now in His promises. Anxiety is such a waste. You said they would become a prey. No, no. These kids, they're the ones that are going to take possession. They will not become a prey. They will take possession of the land. And these children, when they were little, following their parents around, disobeying God, they're following around. They didn't know good from evil. They were young. They were following their parents. They weren't culpable for mom and dad's decisions. They didn't know good and evil at that point, the text says. They've all grown up now. That generation who loved their mom and dads and watched their mom and dads die in the wilderness... They've grown up, and they're poised to take the promise. Don't make the mistakes of your parents. Follow the Lord fully. You will not become a prey. You will take the promised land. Would they learn a lesson from the past? Brothers and sisters, sin is devastating. Sin is a cancer. Sin is a hurricane. Sin leaves an aftermath. Sin always has consequences. Let me say that again. Sin always has consequences. You can't just sin and then complain, Christian, that you feel distant from the Lord and your devotions stink. You can't just sin without recognizing, yes, he's a father that carries you, but he's a good father who will discipline you. 
Unbelief that leads to sin has consequences. Therefore, follow the Lord fully. Faith that obeys, as Joshua and Caleb did, and the second generation will obey, they will enter the land, and they will inherit a land flowing with milk and honey. Now listen very carefully. This is key. Faith that follows fully leads to blessings, not just in the future, but here and now. And we often do not reflect on the blessings of obedience. I don't know why. I maybe should talk with us about that. We should talk about that. Why? There are consequences for sin. We got the kids and Caleb and Joshua, though, that they, they're going to have the blessings of obedience. You see that? I was just in North Carolina at a pastor's conference, and I got... I had the privilege of listening to uh, Wayne Grudem. Many of you are familiar with Wayne Grudem. That was the first time I've he- heard him live. And he did a-, a wonderful talk. He gave 17 blessings for obedience. These are all his that I'm going to bring up. And, and I want to reflect for a second as we think about the consequences for sin I want you to think, as I list these 17 blessings, which don't bother trying to write down, just listen, you are forfeiting every one of these blessings when you sin. It's not just the consequences for sin, like some sort of a slap on the hand. It's the forfeiting of the blessings of obedience that as true believers we long for. So here we go, 17, I'll I'll do many of them. You for, so there's the blessings of deeper fellowship with God when you're obedient. You forfeit that. You forfeit with sin the blessing of bringing glory to God by imitating His character. You forfeit the blessing of becoming a vessel, a vessel for honorable use to God. You forfeit the blessing of being an effective witness to unbelievers. You forfeit the blessing of having God's eyes and ears more attentive to you. You forfeit the blessing of being in closer fellowship with other believers. You forfeit the blessing of a clear conscience. You forfeit the blessing of the experienced peace of God. You you forfeit the blessing of experienced freedom from the slavery of sin. You forfeit the blessing of a greater assurance of salvation. You forfeit the blessing of experiencing a foretaste of heaven. You forfeit the blessing of increased heavenly reward. And in the aftermath of sin... You forfeit the blessing of avoiding God's painful discipline. And that's not all, but I run out of time. Brothers and sisters, it's what we forfeit in our sin that ought to be so sad to us if we love God and have a relationship with Him. Brothers and sisters, here's the point. If you choose to sin against the revealed Word of God, there are consequences that will follow. But it's not just 
the discipline of our Heavenly Father, they're blessings to forfeit. And so the text ends this sad section in verse 40 with a new command from God. God's not done speaking. He gives another command. Here it is. Are you ready for it? It's in verse 40. But as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by way to the Red Sea. So in the aftermath of sin, there are consequences, number one. And in the aftermath of sin, number two, there are consequences and there are choices. Number one, there are consequences. Number two, there are choices. Here is the choice before the people of God in the aftermath of sin. Here's the choice. Will you repent or not? It's not complicated. Repentance is complicated, but that's it. There's one choice for the people of God. Okay. Now, so let's take a look at the text as we move forward here. It really seems good for that first generation when I started to read this. Um, Let's look then under this heading, there are choices at the outward actions. And there's three that you can take note of. There's three outward actions here. Um, Number one, it looks real good. There's confession of sin. There's confession of sin. 41, verse 41. Then you said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. So there's confession of sin. They agree with God that it's sin. That's confession. They say the same thing as the Lord does about their actions. It is sin. Sounds good, right? Secondly, what do we notice with their outward actions? There's an understanding of the promises. Very clear understanding of the promises. Oh, it's not that they didn't get it. There's an understanding of the promises. We will indeed go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. They were to go from Kadesh Barnea, head north, and take the land. They got that, and they said, we're doing that. We're going to, the, we're going to go, we're obeying now. They're going to the command of the Lord, and they're going, they get exactly what the promises of God imply. They get what they mean. And so it looks good because true repentance has to confess sin. It looks good. True repentance has to understand the commands of God. But notice the third outward action. The third, it sounds, it's, it's really good. They're weeping. They're weeping over consequences. Verse 41 in the middle, and every man of you girded on his weapons of war and regarded it an easy thing to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you. Otherwise, you will be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do, and crushed you from Seir to Hormah. Verse 45, then you returned and wept before the Lord. 
But the Lord did not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. They wept. They tried to crush the Amorites. They got crushed. They returned with their tails tucked between their legs and they wept before the Lord. They wept literally before the face of Yahweh. There was weeping. Was it weeping over their sin because they confessed it? No. It was weeping over the consequences of their sin. Like Esau of old, who was hungry for that bowl of soup that day and was willing to give up the blessing, to forfeit the blessing of his birthright. And when he realized, "Uh uh-oh, what have I done? When he realized the consequences of his sin, he wept. Esau wept, not out of true repentance, but he wept for the consequences. He panicked as he recognized all the blessings of obedience that he forfeited. And they flashed before his eyes and then they were gone. And the same thing is happening here in our passage. And we know in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, it says of Esau that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance. He didn't repent, though he sought it with tears. The weeping of the people of Israel here was not genuine repentance. God would not pay attention to their weeping, the text says. He would not listen to their weeping. And so we have to ask ourselves the questions when it comes to our sin. Do we weep because we got caught in our sin? Do we weep because of the consequences of our sin? Or do we weep because we have sinned against God and forfeited His good blessings? I don't, now hear me, I don't think it's particularly sinful to, to, to weep over the consequences of sin. Who hasn't? I've done that. But understand, by itself, weeping simply over the consequences of sin, even if you've confessed that sin, even if you understand the commands of God, and a whole lot of tears, Believing the promises of God, that is not definitive evidence of true repentance. It just isn't. And you know why? Because God is not looking for the outward. God looks at the heart. And what do we find in the inward attitudes of the people of Israel? First, we see pride. It's still there. We see pride fueling this. Look at it. Number one, pride, if you're looking for inward attitudes. 41, then you said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. We, we will indeed go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every man of you girded on his weapons of war, and here it is, and regarded it as easy to go up to the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you. Otherwise, you will be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the commands of the Lord. And so, in spite of the fortified cities and spite of all of their previous fears, they recognize they're forfeiting things, they panic. What have we done? And that panic settles in, 
and, and, and it is fueled by a deep, settled pride. We will indeed go up and fight. We, we think it's, we, they regarded it as easy to go up to the hill country. We can do this. We just need to discipline ourselves. We can take the Amorites with our might. But the Lord said, don't do it. I'm not going to be with you. You're going to be defeated. I don't want to hear this. We're going to obey the Lord. We're going to take this land. We got this. Their false repentance was fueled by pride. It always is. It always is. And that pride is closely connected to presumption. Number two, the inward attitude of presumption. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. So they presumed. They presu- Here's false repentance all day long. Are you ready? Put your seatbelt on. They presumed that they banded together and pulled themselves up by their collective bootstraps that they would be able to take the promised land by, the power, by their own power. They presumed that the previous command of God was still in effect uh, even if they did hear some follow-up commands of God. Mm, well, we'll ignore that. And we'll self-select which scriptures we like the most. They presumed that they could do that. They presumed that God would change His mind, show them mercy, carry them like a son, guide them and provide to them. He presumed, they presumed that mercy would triumph over judgment. They presumed that their tears, that their panic that their understanding, that their confession was genuine and not rebellion. They ran their life by their panic. They continued to run their life by their feelings, even now. Instead of running their life by the Word of God. God says, go in. They say, we won't. God says, don't go in. They say, we will go in. Pastor Johnson used to say this time and time again to me. Jeff, real calm, southern guy. Jeff, boy, sin makes you stupid. I would say that unrepentant sin makes you stupid. You have a choice to make. It looked like repentance but their heart was filled with prideful presumption. What does this tell us about true repentance? Here's what it tells us. There, you, have to under, you have to confess your sin. You have to understand the promises of God. There may be tears, but here's how you know that repentance is genuine. It bears fruits in keeping with repentance. Obedience to the Word of God is evidence of true repentance. I just want to highlight what Moses highlights, that there was just no obedience here in this generation to the Word of God. We remember that the last command of God that they conveniently forgot was found in verse 40. God said, but as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by way to the Red Sea. That's a command of God. That's the very Word of God. This is the Word of God, and God is so gracious. He doesn't want them to resume. He, he doesn't want these people to be wiped out, so He warns them again through Moses, and He says, tell them, 
I won't be with them. Warn them. And so look at verse 42. What is true repentance? Look at verse 42. Let me read it. The Lord said, well, we see what the Lord said, okay? The word of the Lord, speak to them. Do not go up. Very emphatic. Do not fight. I will not be there. Then they disobeyed the clear word of God. True repentance trembles before the word of God. True repentance says, I just want to follow the Lord and do what he says. I've sinned against him. I hate that. I'm displeasing his sight. Lord, I don't even know how to stop. Lord, help me. See, with, and that flows out of an inward attitude, not pride or presumption, but all true repentance flows out of a deep sense of brokenness before God, a deep humility before God. There's a humility and there's an inability and a an helplessness that is connected, just like presumption is connected to pride. Humility is connected to dependence, not presumption. And a helplessness that just begs God and it expresses itself in prayer. And these are the hard attitudes that lead to true repentance. Brothers and sisters, there is, there's an aftermath in our sin. There are consequences and there is a choice to make. Will you truly repent? And as we drive this home for the last couple of implications, I want to talk a little bit about God first, some implications about God. And I want you to see this in verse 34. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath. God is faithful. God is present as a warrior, as a father, as a guide. God is merciful. God is loving. We love to talk about it. I love to talk about it. It's my only hope. But God is also a God who is angry against sin. Sin in unbelievers and sin in believers. He is simply just and righteous and holy and he is angry against sin he doesn't like it that's what the text says and i would just say if you're here and you don't know christ you're not a believer there are god is angry at you for your sin and there will be consequences for your sin and without a sacrifice, a substitute whose name is Jesus, who, who will take all of your sins from you and give you his perfect righteousness if you would trust in Christ today, if you choose not to hide in him and under him and choose to follow yourself fully, I'm telling you, God will not be mocked and the wages of sin will be eternal death in a place called hell. And I would be remiss in this text if I did not warn Everyone sitting here, do not play with sin. Find a substitute. Get forgiven. Repent truly and turn to Christ. But I would also say to believers here, you're not off the hook. Was Moses off the hook? In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it says, our God is a consuming fire. We don't play with sin, believers. Sin will torture us. 
God is indeed a covenant-keeping God. He's a loving Father. He wants the best for us. He's a loving Father. You know what the best is for you, believer? To be freed from the penalty of sin. Amen? But we're not done. To be freed from the power of sin. And to one day be freed from the very presence of sin. God is extracting sin from us. Every day we are repenting and believing in the finished work of Christ. He's not done with us. We have to choose, will we repent? This is the whole goal of the cross and resurrection of Christ. Why will we refuse this direction? We're following Christ fully into freedom from sin ultimately through the power of the cross. Isn't that exciting? Apparently we're not very excited about it. I'm not talking about here. You can, I mean, we're Norwegian. We don't amen anything. But I'm talking about in our lives. In our lives. We just sin away. The grace may abound. God is a loving Father who will carry us, but God is a loving Father who will discipline His children whom He loves. Hebrews chapter 12 makes that clear. In verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. We need to remember, all of us, believers and unbelievers, who God is from this passage. He is a God who is angry against sin. Secondly, we need to have some implications for us that flow from this. I would just say this, brothers and sisters, follow the Lord wholeheartedly. Can I, can I just say, can Grace Community Bible Church commit today with your wives, with, if you're single, with your God, with your friend, with your, with your f- friend, would you commit to God today? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Would you commit today that you may not make it far in life in your business? You may not make it far in life in your athletics. You may not make it far in life in anything else, but would you commit today together that we will go after the Lord and that we will follow the Lord fully. And in order to do that, I've got to remind you about something else, and that is this. In all of those 17 disastrous consequences and forfeiting of blessings I mentioned, there's one common denominator for all of them. And Moses brings it up in our text, and here it is. The one horror for a true believer is this. Distance from relationship. Distance from the felt presence of God. It is nothing more horrific for a true believer than distance from God. The one who holds us and carries us like a father. It's found in verse 42. The Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up and fight for I am not among you. And what does that look like? What does it feel like? 
When we sinned, the Lord did not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. The most important blessing of our lives, all of the blessings all tie into this. It threatens, sin threatens our fellowship with God. If that's boring to you, we need to talk. If that's not a big deal to you, we need to keep talking. It threatens your fellowship with God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us be led by the Spirit daily into true repentance from sin and faith in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you may not suffer loss in anything through us. For sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, here's true repentance. I don't know what it means, but I like it. For because I haven't studied this passage in detail, for behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. It gives us a picture, and tears are not in there. They might be, but they're not in there. This is true repentance. The aftermath of sin. I can tell you why. I'm going to end on this. Are you believer? Listen to me. Are you glad for Jesus Christ this morning? Here's the reality. The reality is this. Every single one of us in this room and listening to this sermon, we deserve eternal hell. But I believe in Jesus. You know what? Because of him, I'm not going to ever get that. The aftermath of my pride and presumption, the aftermath of my picking and choosing obedience to the word of God, the aftermath of my fear of man, the aftermath of my sin was the sinless Savior dead upon the tree. He went there for me. He went there for you. He secured in his death and resurrection. He secured ongoing repentance and faith for me, for you. He secured my way through the wilderness. And he secured our way to the promised eternal inheritance. In light of the aftermath of sin, all I can say today, and maybe we'll sing about it next, I hope, hallelujah, right? What a Savior we have in Christ. Let us pray.